What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush, Friday interview edition. And uh, guys, this week, it's a very special treat. I had a bit of a documentary filmmaking legend in the office here in Atlanta. Uh, he's doing a press tour, Mr. Joe Berlinger. Um, he uh, he made a documentary early in his career called Brothers Keeper that was one of the first big documentaries in my life early on in college that I watched um, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. It's on my top ten list of all-time documentaries uh, that I put out a few years ago, and has since uh, gone on to make a great career as a as a documentarian. He did the uh, the Paradise Lost movies. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen these, um, following the story of the the, the murders uh, and the West Memphis Three. Uh, he made the Metallica documentary. He made a great document uh, documentary on Whitey Bulger. Uh, one thing I did not even get to ask him about was this uh, fantastic TV show that he directed a bunch of episodes on called Iconoclasts, which um, I used to love, love, love that show. Um, but we were short on time today. He was on a press tour, so we didn't have a lot of time. Uh, in fact, we did not even get to his film pick, uh, but I'll go ahead and plug that anyway. It's called Salesman, um, one of the classic, classic uh, documentaries uh, released in 1969. Um, cinema verite uh, that follows the story of these uh, Bible salesmen in the late 60s in the United States. Really, really good film uh, that we didn't get to because we just talked a lot about um, documentary filmmaking in general 
Uh, it's rare that I have someone of his caliber in here and can pick his brain about uh, documentaries. And so we did that. And we also uh, talked, uh, the reason he's on this press tour, about uh, his great new film on Netflix, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, which is the, not documentary, everyone, uh, his second foray into um, scripted feature filmmaking, uh, the story of Ted Bundy as played by Zac Efron. Uh, really, really good film, everybody. You should check it out. Releases two weeks from today on May 3rd. Uh, it takes a um, an approach that I really appreciated, uh, which is to say told from the story of some of the living victims of Ted Bundy and not um, does not glorify him. And, and in fact, it's not even a very violent film. Um, it doesn't doesn't show a lot of that stuff. Uh, a lot a lot of courtroom drama. Really, really good stuff. So check out Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile on Netflix starting in two weeks, and uh, just dive into Joe Berlinger's career. Um, just really, really uh, amazing stuff that he's done, and it was a great, great honor to sit with him. So here we go with Joe Berlinger on documentaries. So yeah, I saw the film last night. Actually, oh cool at yeah. the at the thing or no? Oh, if oh, I oh. if I had known it was oh, screening last gone. night, I might have been able to uh, to make gone. it. It was a really nice screening. Yeah, it was really good, man. Yeah. Congratulations! Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I am curious to talk a little bit about like we've never had a docu- We've only covered covered one documentary on this show so far. Uh, one person, my, a good friend of mine, picked uh, Vernon, Florida. Ah, and. Um, Classic. So this, yes, obviously. And um but we've never had a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker of your caliber. How come? Uh you know, there aren't many of you. <laughs> well, there's plenty of doc makers out there doing great work. You're you're a bit of a legend and you sort a legend of, in my own mind. <laughs> you sort of also represent my um my own uh sort of journey with documentaries and that uh I really started in college like deep diving and Brothers Keeper was one of the very first ones that I uh, dug into and sort of changed the way that and Thin Blue Line obviously yeah. changed the way I sort of looked at documentaries. Cool, so. yeah. No, that was a special time. You know, in the early, not, well, late '80s, early '90s, there was a couple of us trying to change documentary each yeah. in our own way. You know, um, Errol Morris, of course, with Thin Blue Line, which was hugely uh-huh. influential to me. You know, was pushing the envelope with documentary by embracing recreations mm-hmm. and making them cinematic. That was new. Right. Uh, Michael Moore was, um, you know, on camera filmmaker, putting yourself on camera and being a curmudgeon for social justice. You know, that was new. Yeah. Um, and I think what we were trying to do with Brothers Keeper is to craft a documentary that kind of looked and feels like. Um, um, you know, a narrative film, not mm-hmm. narrative in the sense that it's fictional because obviously as a journalist and a documentarian, you're still tethered to the truth and you must honor right. the truth, which means you can't put words in people's mouths and you can't overly manipulate chronology. I, right. say, I say overly manipulate because any documentarian who says they don't play with chronology is, you know, not telling you the sure. truth because, you know – um, documentaries are a compression of time. You know, mm-hmm. Brothers Keeper was a three-week murder trial. Right. So the only the only objective reality to to watch is three weeks of my dailies of the murder trial. You're trusting the filmmaker to take mm-hmm. that material and condense it into a narrative. And so, because of my and Bruce Sanofsky's belief that 
all filmmaking, including documentaries, are subjective. That doesn't mean they're not truthful, but every bit, every film is subjective mm-hmm. because you're making a zillion subjective choices from what you put in the film and what you leave on the cutting room floor, how you frame a shot when you're right. shooting it, the days we weren't there to cover something because it was kind of a weekend endeavor. Um, you know, every filmmaking, every film is a series of thousands of subjective decisions. So why not embrace that? Still be truthful. You've mm-hmm. got to tell a real story. But why not borrow from the narrative filmmaker's toolbox and do things like an evocative opening title sequence, right. which we use, which all of these things I'm saying now, like filmmakers today are like, well, what are you talking about? That's what, do- <laughs> that's what documentaries are, but not in the late no, 80s. So right, yeah. You know, so we do use this evocative opening title sequence, and which some of the, you know, the then leaders of documentary back then were like, well, you can't have an opening title sequence like that. That's really? Not, that's not a documentary. Yeah. And then, a simple thing. We hired these incredible musicians, Jay Unger and Molly Mason, mm-hmm. to do this fiddle music. Throughout the, we did an original score for a documentary, so yeah. which again today is like so common. You know, young filmmakers are like, "What is he talking about?" That's a documentary. But back then, using a music score was criticized as being subjective because you're you're helping people feel a certain way. Well, right. that's what a you know all all films are inherently subjective. And so we kind of push the envelope. And it's also being conscious of narrative structure, classic narrative structure, uh, which means selectively withholding the information until the right dramatic moment. Mm -hmm. And the reason we gravitated towards a murder trial is that a murder trial has uh, perfect dramatic structure. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a protagonist and an antagonist Mm -hmm. vying for the truth. And by the end of the movie – you know, the protagonist is changed in some way. That's, right. that's the classic definition of drama. Potential twists, of course. Exactly. So so um, I think that was our little contribution. And, it, you know, it's gratifying. There's so many younger filmmakers and not so younger filmmakers now um, who have said that Brothers Keeper kind of made them want to become a filmmaker, like Morgan Spurlock, Brett Morgan, right. Simon Kilmurray. All of them saw Brothers Keeper in a uh-huh. movie theater and said, that's what I want to do. So that, that's been that's been nice to hear. Yeah, it was so great. Um, boy, I have a million questions after that, <laughs> after that <laughs> bit. Uh, maybe let's just start with your where, – where did you start and why documentaries? What – like you as a kid, how is that seed planted? Yeah. Well, you know, I wish I could say that this was my lifelong ambition and that I always wanted to be a documentarian. The truth is it's, it was like so much of my life, it was kind of coincidental. Um, although I do subscribe to the definition of luck, you know, as opportunity meets preparation. You right. Know, you know, so basically taking advantage of the opportunities presented to me. But when I was um, in college, I had, you know, I didn't go to film school. Uh, what college? I went to Colgate University. Okay. And there was a, prof- a film, my senior year, there was a film professor who who came for the first time to have a f- film class, but not a major or a department, a guy named John Connect, who's still a friend of mine. And and he turned me on to film, but I never thought it would be a career choice because I just wasn't in that mindset. And I was at I was a language major in college, mm-hmm. proficient in a number of languages, and and I was a German major and fluent in German. And so my only goal in college was to figure out how I could get a decent paycheck, 
using languages so that I could live in Europe. That that was my goal. I wanted right. to live in Europe and speak languages and get and somehow get paid. <laughs> that, that was as that was the the lofty goal. That's great. And so That's I bluffed goal. I bluffed my way into a job at Ogilvy and Mather, which is one of the big sure. international ad agencies, and they shipped me over to Frankfurt to coordinate some shoots because I spoke some languages right. and they were looking for a young American who spoke some languages. And the, literally the first time I was ever on a set, the first time I ever saw a production mm-hmm. was for a American Express commercial shooting in Germany. And I was like the young production coordinator. Right. And that's when the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, I like this film, yeah. TV. And uh, then that also coincided with um, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise was playing in Germany. Wow. And so, a I great, wa- great film. And, I, and so I walked into a theater in Germany and watched this film that just kind of blew me away. Yeah. And I thought, I could do that. Um, <laughs> I mean, not, you know what I'm saying. It just no, felt, it felt, it felt accessible. That was sure. the charm of that movie is, is it, just, it just felt accessible. Um, and so I – uh, I, I got to the, a point in my career in advertising in Germany where I felt like if I didn't go back to New York and try to get into the film business, mm-hmm. I would never go back because I kept getting, you know, uh, I was moving up the ladder at Ogilvy and I was becoming like an international ad guy. Right. A certain kind of international ad guy that I was going to be. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was appealing to me because that was my goal. I wanted sure. to figure out a way to l- live abroad and speak languages. But – this um, this desire to f- explore film, I felt if I don't leave soon, I'll never do it. So I I convinced Ogilvy to ship me back to New York. I didn't tell them I was planning on figuring out how to get into the <laughs> film business, but so I came back to New York. Now I was more I was like a full fledged producer mm-hmm. on American Express in New York, and we hired the Maisel brothers, the famous documentarians sure. who did Gimme Shelter and Salesman and Grey Gardens. Um, so we hired the Maisel brothers to shoot these unscripted television commercials, which now is a common genre of commercials. So that was going on back then, huh? Uh, this was one of the first times. Really? I can't take credit for it. It was the ad agency creatives who uh-huh. said, let's do documentary-style commercials. But it was relatively new. Yeah. So we, so I was just on that job and we hired the Maisel brothers and I kind of – and I was only about 26 at the time – we kind of hit it off, and in particular, I hit it off with David Mazels. He sadly passed a few years later. Right, uh, he was the brother who passed away early in mm-hmm. the mid fifties, and but I, I kind of hit it off with them, and they were digging the fact that they were getting serious money to do a documentary style commercial, uh, because back then there was no big tradition of like fully funded documentaries right. the way that, the way it is now. Sure. So they were looking for a way to get more TV commercial business. I was looking for a way to get into the film business. And so I started working for them as wow. their executive producer for commercials, which was just a glorified sales job where I basically went from ad agency to ad yeah. agency to convince advertisers to – or the agency people who represented the advertisers mm-hmm. to try real people commercials, which yeah. became a flourishing genre in the 90s. Um, so – but the irony is that I was not looking to get into documentary. I didn't uh-huh. have a particular love of documentary. Oh, wow. I, I, you know, I wanted to just get into film. Uh-huh. And I've always joked that, um, you know, had the creatives on that American Express commercial decided they wanted to have like some big budget fantasy commercial and they hired Ridley Scott to shoot it. And if I had hit uh-huh. it off with Ridley Scott <laughs> at lunch one day as a 26-year-old, you'd be making ma- sci-fi ma- films. Ma- maybe, I, maybe I'd be in Hollywood with a different career arc. 
which is true, but on the other hand, I also now that I'm I've lived my life for the last three decades um, as a filmmaker, um, I look back and I, I believe things happen for a reason. And uh-huh. my life as a documentarian, I think, was you know meant to be. And I've had amazing experiences dropping into the lives of people. Yeah, you know whether it's a week for a commercial or you know three years with a band like Metallica or two decades covering the Paradise Lost story. Um, you know, there's nothing like, you know, showing up with a camera and being able to meet people that you would normally never get to meet and experience things that you, you know, that you're invited to experience because you're documenting it. So, you know, the fact that I became a documentarian in hindsight, I don't think is as coincidental as it was, um, but it kind of was on another level. Yeah, that – uh, that's not the answer I expected. I thought you were going to say, you know, from a child, I had a burning desire to tell the truth. And to <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the reasons that you know, I I didn't have uh, for reasons because certain people are living, and I don't want to get too deep into it. You know, I did grow up in a tough environment, and uh-huh. I did get a sense of of social injustice, and I did have, uh, you know, I it did instill in me a desire to like right some wrongs. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that didn't kind of wake up until after I was already a filmmaker. In fact, Brothers Keeper was purely an aesthetic experience of wanting to push the documentary form and it had no social justice component to it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until Paradise Lost where that gene for social activism right. kind of woke up because – I mean actually with Paradise Lost, I thought we were making a film about guilty teenagers because yeah. you know we showed up a week after the West Memphis 3 of course they weren't called the West Memphis 3 back then they were right. called you know rotten satanic teen killers sure, yeah yeah but we showed up a week after they were arrested the trial was still 7 months away we embedded in that community um and for the first 3 months of doing uh, Paradise Lost we thought we were making a film about guilty teenagers right. because uh-huh. All the press out of Arkansas, I mean, this is, of course, predated the internet, really, or the mm-hmm. internet was just starting. But, you know, there was still like regular press and local press, which there is, of course, now, but a different era. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, all the press coming out of Arkansas was that these guys were definitively guilty, yeah. that a confession had been printed in the newspaper. Of course, nobody knew that that confession was multiple different parts from a succeeding number of statements that until they got it right and then the, the the confession was actually kind of just the highlights of multiple statements yeah um, which we learned later in the trial um, and you know the police were saying on a scale of one to ten the evidence is an 11 mm-hmm. so um, you know we had no reason to think we weren't making a film and in fact it was Sheila Evans at HBO the great documentary you know, uh, the mother of documentary, right. you know, she, I mean, she's so, you know, Sheila was so responsible for the modern documentary being what it is today. I mean, HBO was kind of the first people in the game. Sure. And, and a lot of people owe what what it's become, I think, to, to her work. But she wanted a teen killing teen satanic ritual murder film. Right. That's what we thought we were making a film about. And we went down and spent the first couple of months embedded in that community mainly with the families of the victims. We thought we were telling their horrible tragedy, and we were, of course, Mm -hmm. but we thought we were telling their story of these rotten kids. And finally, after about three months of um, negotiations, we were able to get access to the West Memphis Three who were in county jail Mm -hmm. awaiting trial. And, you know, with great trepidation, we walked in thinking we were – interviewing these rotten kids and by the time the interviews were over 
Just like one plus one was not equaling right. two. It just it's not like a light bulb went off and I said, Oh my God, they're innocent. Uh-huh. It just didn't feel right. Yeah, and that yeah. started this journey. In particular, I remember interviewing Jason Baldwin, who was Damien you know, Damien Eccles was the alleged ringleader and, right. and his friend Jason Baldwin was involved and he was this sweet little 16-year-old kid mm-hmm. with a squeaky voice and you know I looked at his tiny little wrists during the interview and I kept looking at I kept looking at his wrists and thinking about the prosecution's story that he's the guy who wielded this 10-inch serrated yeah. hunting knife and castrated one of the boys and I just it just didn't feel right to me it's just like uh-huh. I can't you know Damien was honestly harder to read because he was kind of enjoying the attention. And right. He was, he was poking people back mm-hmm. because he was kind of outraged. And, yeah, you provocative. Know, and, and, and so I couldn't quite tell just from those initial conversations from his standpoint. But talking to Jason really kind of convinced me that something was not right here. And, of course, that started this journey. And by the time it got to trial, I couldn't imagine that these guys would actually be convicted. But then we witnessed this you know, literally this modern-day witch hunt where yeah. Stephen King novels and Metallica lyrics are being introduced as the main evidence uh-huh. as to why these kids were were teen killers. Um, you know, no forensic evidence yeah. of any value, no blood at the crime scene. It was the, it was like this crazy witch hunt. And at the end of Paradise Lost, you see Damien Eccles being chained up and led off to death row and mm-hmm. Jason Baldwin being chained up to life without parole sentences. Um, you know, the Miss Kelly trial, he was, you know, was, was the first half of the film and he's been sent off to uh, to prison. But it's it's really that moment where Damien is being chained up and led off at the end of the movie uh, where that – where, you know, the light bulb goes off that, oh, we can use – we first of all, we've just witnessed this incredible miscarriage of justice. Mm-hmm. This guy is going – this 18-year-old boy is going off to death row for a crime that we were convinced he didn't commit. You know, the jury heard nothing but garbage. Yeah. And that's when the social activist gene in me kind of woke up right. that filmmaking can be used for social mm-hmm. justice and we committed ourselves to like telling that that story. Yeah, it seems some of the most um, interesting documentaries to me, or now some of the uh, true crime podcasts like S Town or um, Sherman's March or Vernon, Florida, uh, or your films, start out as something and end up being something else. Yes. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, 
pots and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What is it about or how important is that for a documentarian to not have that agenda and to be open to, you know, changing mid-course? Critical. I mean, that's the number one thing I tell most aspiring filmmakers. On the one hand, you have to be prepared, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's not like I'm saying don't prepare and understand what you need to do for the day. Of course, you need to have a game plan. You need to know what your questions are in your interviews. But, like, be prepared to just change on a dime. Otherwise, you're going to miss the story. HBO wanted a teen – this was our first commercial assignment Mm -hmm. after Brothers Keeper. And the person hiring us wanted a teen killing teens – sorry, teens killing little boys movie in a satanic ritual. And in fact, when I called her up after that first interview with Jason Baldwin to give her a report that actually I'm not sure this is a teen – killer movie, but rather a wrongful, at that time, wrongful arrest, not wrongful, it wasn't wrongful conviction yet. I was half afraid she was going to cancel the movie. Um, But to her credit, Sheila said, you know, that sounds even more interesting. Continue. But the the lesson to filmmakers is you must be prepared. I've never started a film that hasn't turned out to be something far different than what it begins to be. I mean, Metallica was just supposed to be this little assignment of shooting some B-roll for the band (laughs) as a favor to the band because they gave us music for Paradise Lost for free. So in return, they were going into the studio and we were just going to cover a little, you know, behind the scenes activity. And that just grew from there, huh? And that just like blew up into, you know, into something that was totally unexpected. Um, So you have to be prepared. And interestingly, since I think eventually we're going to talk about Extremely Wicked, which was basically my first feature. You know, I did a feature 20 years ago. Well, we can talk about that or not. That didn't, <laughs> that di- that didn't go so well and not because of me. I mean partially because of me. But the studio put that movie in a meat grinder and didn't believe in my director's cut. Right. Um, and the results are well known. But, um, but uh, on this movie, Extremely Wicked, what I – brought I think to the table as a filmmaker is exactly what you're talking about Mm -hmm. is like not being so locked in you must prep and know what you want to do for Mm -hmm. the day but be prepared to change and so I felt my goal as a director on a feature film was to create an environment where everyone felt free and secure and unintimidated to mm-hmm. just create whatever magic they felt. And even though I might have had an initial instinct about which way I wanted to go, I was free enough and encouraged everybody on the movie to be free enough that let's create something and if something is better, let's go for that. And that grew 
directly out of my documentary aesthetic that I've, right. ne- I've never started a movie in documentary that hasn't greatly changed um, while it's unfolding and that's the whole nature. You, you know, you jump out a window in document in, in verit. I mean, there's certain type of documentaries that doesn't apply to. If you're doing a historical look at right. like, you know, uh, the Kid bat- stays in the picture or something like exactly. that. Exactly. If you're doing yeah. a biographical film, but even that has its surprises, but generally speaking, if you're doing something about historical or biographical, it's less it's less subject to change. Mm-hmm. But verite documentaries where you're following a story as it's unfolding and, you, you, you know, you want to be surprised because that surprise is then communicated to the audience. So we've always said, you know, we, you know for, for these films, you jump out a window and you hope there's a mattress on the other side to catch it. Right. But you have to embrace the fact that you're, you're covering a story where you don't know the outcome. Yeah, I really love seeing the the uh, broad swath of uh, how documentaries have changed in the last like thirty years. Yeah, um, from just sort of the straight up verite style, uh, which we still see today, to things like Kid Stays in the Picture. Yeah, uh, and then you've got like Ken Burns on one side and Kid Stays in the Picture on the other, and everything in between. Yeah, um, I'm curious though, with your experience, like, do you feel like <sighs> have documentaries lost their way in any way? Or is it just great to see so many different things happening? Well, I think um, – I mean that's a great question. I think it, I think it depends on the filmmaker. There's been some irresponsible filmmaking. There's, there's some filmmaking where there's an agenda to the exclusion of being objective. Right. Um, you know, there are three basic impulses I think that drive a, f- a documentarian, you know, and, and – they're not mutually exclusive, but they can bump into each other, mm-hmm. which is some people come into filmmaking purely for storytelling reasons. Some people come into filmmaking for journalism. You know, They right. want to journalistically portray something and sometimes filmmakers come in because they want to advocate for a cause. Mm-hmm. And I think advocacy, storytelling and journalism sometimes are at odds w- with each other. Right. For example, what makes a great story is is sometimes selectively withholding information until the right dramatic moment. If you push that too far, then you're not being a good journalist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes – and I think the biggest problem with some advocacy films is that they're afraid of showing all sides um, of, of a subject. And I think people feel sometimes cheated or being lectured to. For example, in Paradise Lost, we showed all sides of the subject to, yeah. the, to the point where 20% of the people who saw the movie thought that they were watching a movie about guilty teenagers because right. we didn't bang our point of view over your head. But what you get by treating the audience like a jury, mm-hmm. which has been my basic filmmaking philosophy where I don't bang my point of view over your head. Of course, the point of view of the film is is with every decision, but you're leading the audience in a way – that feels less pointed mm-hmm. than some other more advocacy-driven films where they're afraid to show both sides. Right. And so if you're in an audience, whether you're at home on TV or in a, literally in an audience, and the filmmaker is you know, lecturing to you a very overt point of view, mm-hmm. it can be fascinating, but that's a passive viewing experience. You're being told by the filmmaker what to think. Mm-hmm. In an experience like Brothers Keeper or Paradise Lost where we kind of evolved this style, you're hearing all sides and you're being forced to confront the information 
and make your own decision as to what you're seeing. And I right. think that's the best for me. And look, I don't want to tell other people how to make a film. For me, that's the best way to see a film mm-hmm. and to make a film is for the viewer to be in the very active as opposed to passive mm-hmm. position of evaluating. You know, so for Brothers Keeper, we see him, we see Damien strangely combing his hair in a in a mirror that's used to look for bombs. And so you think to yourself, God, he is a little narcissistic and weird. Could he be capable of these things? Yeah. He's not pounding his fist denying that he did these crimes. That's a little odd for somebody who's uh-huh. innocent. But the price you – know, so the price you pay I think is maybe 20 percent and that was my feeling over the years. Like 20 percent of the people who have seen Paradise Lost thought they were guilty, that they uh-huh. had watched a movie about weird teenagers who – must have done these crimes. But what you get by rewarding the audience for their intelligence is that 80 percent of the people not only believed that they had witnessed this outrageous um, miscarriage of justice, mm-hmm. they were allowed to come to that conclusion themselves by evaluating the the information in the film instead of being lectured to by a filmmaker. Right. And so when you come to your to the conclusion yourself – after evaluating the pros and cons that a miscarriage of justice has taken place, mm-hmm. that's a much more persuasive and emotional experience. And as a result, t- literally, tens you know the films get a lot of credit for having gotten the guys out of prison, and the celebrities have gotten a lot of credit who watched the movies for getting the guys out of prison, like Johnny Depp and Eddie Vedder. Right, and right. All of that is true, and I don't want to take away from the film, and I don't want to take away from the celebrities. But really, what got those guys out of prison? is the tens of thousands of regular people who were so moved by that movie uh-huh. that they banded together and formed this Free the West Memphis Three, you know, kind of grassroots movement. Literally, you know, bankers and, you know, poster makers and whatever right. people did for a living would take their vacations in Arkansas to wow. demonstrate at appeal hearings. Uh-huh. And I think that's the power of letting people decide for themselves what they're viewing. Mm-hmm. You know, again, great documentary um, that's out now on HBO is the Leaving Neverland film. But I di- – you know, and it's a powerful film. But I disagree with the filmmakers that that they shouldn't have had the other side because when you have the other side, give them enough rope to hang themselves. Right. Allow the viewer to hear both sides so that they can come to the conclusion uh, that they came to. You know, I made a movie about pollution in the Amazon called Crude. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the activists who were involved in that case were very upset with me that I allowed Chevron to have their point of view in the film. Really? But only by showing both sides can viewers come to their own conclusion. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that's that's been my gu- kind of guiding principle. I'm curious about the documentarian community. Um, as an outsider, I guess I like to think that everyone kind of knows each other and supports each other. But uh, how how does that work? Are people connected and yeah. is there competition? Or? Well, of course there's competition. You know, It's um, got to be a different thing though than traditional narrative I, I would think ha- having, having, done a nar- having just finished doing a narrative film and having done documentaries, I will say the documentary community is a much – I hate to say it. And again, there's great people everywhere and bad people everywhere. So you've asked me a generalized question. So I'm going to give you a broad (laughs) – I'm going to paint with a broad generalized – you know, I think think people in the feature film world take themselves far too seriously. Uh Things are, you know – cloaked in in secrecy and people you know it's like guys we're we're not curing cancer here yeah, you know yeah. and i think i think for the most part documentarians are deeply caring um 
people who are there to shine a light on a social abuse. Are there egomaniacs in documentary? Of course. Are there people who are jealous and competitive and petty? Of course, because right. you find that in everything. But by and large, I think the documentary community is a much closer-knit group of people who try to support and help each other mm -hmm. a little more than on the scripted side of things. And I think – you know, some documentarians are trying to cure cancer, you know, right. whereas like some of the some of the stupid, like uh, pretentious behavior on the feature film side sometimes makes me just scratch my head, you know. Yeah. Um, that having been said, I greatly enjoyed doing the movie and would love to do another movie. But you asked the question. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about the movie. It's, um, you know, you referenced your previous uh, foray into feature filmmaking. Yes. Uh, with the Blair Witch, the much sequel. loved, the much loved Blair Witch Two <laughs> that people point to as one of the most successful sequels in cinema history. Oh, really? No, no, I'm teasing. Oh, okay. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was much maligned at the time. You know. Well, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of time between that and this. Yeah. Um, did you think you didn't want to do that again ever? Like, oh, that's what scary. about the, the, the process? The, the, well, that first film. Look, I, if I. I I hope one day Lionsgate, which bought Artisan, will allow me to release my director's cut because mm -hmm. at the very least, it's not to say my director's cut of Blair Witch 2 will, will be any w better received per se than my – than what was released. But at least it would be my movie. Right. And then at least I would That's know. That's got to be frustrating. Then I would – you know, the, the only thing worse than having a movie be spit upon by the public – uh, is you know, and in such a in such a profound way as that movie was, is the only thing worse is that when it wasn't even your cut, you know. Right. At the, you know, I purposely created a movie that was a satire and was making fun of the whole idea of doing a sequel because there was a lot of venom about doing a right. sequel because the original Blair Witch was this little indie phenomenon. Sure. That you know, this little hundred forty thousand dollar movie became this um, mega grossing, you know, worldwide phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so within a year, a sequel was out and a lot of people resented that. And I underestimated the amount of venom that anything called Blair Witch 2 mm -hmm. would would engender. In fact, they recently tried to forget my movie and they came out with a Blair Witch, you know, a Blair Witch prequel about a year or two ago. And that, really. actually, that actually did worse than my film. <laughs> Uh, you know, my film still grossed $54 million. I mean, the irony is my film grossed $54 million worldwide and did $25 million on DVD because it was the era of, like, right. DVD. Uh -huh. And our film was a dual disc where it had the movie on one side and a, a, the soundtrack on the other. And that alone did $25 million. Wow. You know, so – but it's considered this epic failure. And I'm like, well, you know, the movie cost $10 million. It grossed fifty four. <laughs> Made a lot of money for somebody. And it did $25 million. It's not that I mean, but creatively, it was considered not good, um, and that was painful because I thought I made a really fun, smart movie that made fun of the whole idea mm -hmm. of doing uh, a, a sequel. It was a very pre-scream, which was very self-reflexive, a mm -hmm. pre-scream, self-reflexive movie making fun of the idea of a sequel, yeah, and making fun of the idea that the original Blair Witch. Well, the original Blair Witch was making fun of, of how that movie succeeded. Mm -hmm. And the reason that movie succeeded is that people marketed that movie, artists and marketed that movie as a real documentary. And a lot right. of people went into the movie theater thinking it's a real documentary. Mm -hmm. And I, as a documentarian, found that deeply disturbing sure. because, first of all, shaking your camera around and do, and shooting terribly is not what a real documentary <laughs> is. As yeah. somebody who's made beautifully crafted films. Agreed. 
And secondly, the really disturbing part of the success of the first movie to me as a real journalist is that, you know, Time, Newsweek, you know, the late night talk shows, everybody, you know, just kind of celebrated the marketing hoax, you know. And to me, it's like, wait, not one article about what are we doing here? We're lying to the public. Mm -hmm. we're, we're pretending something's a documentary that it's not. We've duped people into going into a movie theater by pretending it's a documentary. And nobody is pulling back and saying, wait, over the last four decades, you know, since the hallowed days of Edward R. Murrow and CBS News and that sacrosanct, you know, hard line between mm -hmm. news and entertainment, we've so blurred the line between entertainment and reality that we're celebrating a hoax as opposed to saying, wait a second, and boy, was that movie and that theme, meaning my original intent, ha have become pre so prescient today in mm -hmm. a world of fake news, alternative facts, and Fox News and MSNBC just screaming, you know, and I, I, I love Rachel Maddow and I love MSNBC for the record. But, you know, we live in a world where everyone just is in their own echo chamber. Yeah, and you absolutely. Can put, you, could, you could put up Fox News and NBC, MSNBC on a split screen and it's just two covering the same story and it's yeah. just two alternative universes. That's what I was making fun of with Blair Witch and I was doing an edgy adult satire mm -hmm. and at the 12th hour the studio took a look at the movie that they had greenlit and got scared and felt it needed to be a traditional horror movie which is not what I Shot. made and they <laughs> they hired they hired the wrong guy if they wanted a traditional horror movie yeah. and I was very clear in my intention of what I was trying to do so they literally you know they they shot uh gory recreations even though I said hey the legacy of the first Blair Witch was um the legacy was all the violence happens off, off screen and now you're showing it. I uh -huh. mean, that's like ridiculous. And I, w I disavowed the movie upon its release, which is a well-known story to some. So I, I, I feel confident saying that. Uh -huh. um, you know, so if my own movie had been released, my version of it that didn't have the gory recreations and had a different, you know, the arrangement of the scenes – um, you know, maybe it would have fared better, maybe not, you know, but at least it would have been my movie that failed in somebody, instead of somebody's um, focus group right. committee-making film that ultimately was, was Blair Witch 2. Well, why jump back in now? Like, did it – at one point were you just like, screw that, I'm not doing it was that such ever a again? It was such a miserable experience. Uh -huh. Actually, I was, you know, 39 at the time. It was such an epic failure. It was one of the biggest releases of at that – of that time, it was released in six countries simultaneously on, um, like I think, two thousand screens. It was it was actually one of the biggest releases in its day. It's been eclipsed since then, right? And you know, uh, <laughs> the publicist warned me you don't want to read these reviews, and I'm I'm I was so anal back then about those types. Of, I want to read the reviews. So in one language after the other, I sat by my fax machine. <laughs> In German, in French, in oh, Spanish, no. calling me the biggest asshole that ever lived, and I destroyed, <laughs> I destroyed the franchise, and I literally curled up in a ball and just, I thought my life was over, you know. And one of the lessons I've learned is that, you know, because up until that point, I had gotten nothing but great reviews: mm -hmm. Brothers Keeper, sure. Paradise Lost, yeah. and so, you know, one of the most important lessons. I learned from that experience, if you're going to validate yourself artistically on the way up and believe your reviews, then, of course, you have to invalidate yourself on right. the way down as as they're calling you all sorts of terrible things. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I basically curled up in a ball 
and was very depressed. And it was kind of intersecting with, gee, I'm nearing 40 and all this stuff. And my wife, um, bless her heart, Lauren Eiferman, came into my office because we had two young children at home. And she handed me a copy of Paradise Lost and she said, here, watch this movie and remind yourself that you're a good wow. filmmaker and get off your ass and start working again. That's great. And so, I po- <laughs> so I popped in the film and, you know, the opening title sequence of Paradise Lost is over the murder site to a yeah. Metallica song. So great. And that's how the Metallica film started. So it, it, it kind of popped into my head, oh, yeah, Lars – wanted us to do some B-roll, and I told him after the movie was over, meaning Blair Witch, I'd, I'd reach out to him. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get back on my feet. I'm going to be a filmmaker again. Uh-huh. So I called Lars, and I said, hey, you, you want to do that B-roll? And he said, sure, come on out to, you know, we're going to start recording in about a month. Why don't you call Electra, our record label, get it set up, and come shoot some B-roll? So I went out to um, to San Francisco totally. In, in fact, Bruce and I had my longtime filmmaking partner who sadly passed a few yeah. years ago, um, we had actually broken up as a filmmaking team. I went off, you know, the the it's hard having a creative partnership and, and it yeah. lasted two films and I was ready to move on and I went off to do Blair Witch and, you know, I kind of, you know, in hindsight, I kind of abruptly ended the relationship in a way that didn't feel like abrupt at the time, but it, it was abrupt. Mm-hmm. And I went off to go do the Metallica film by myself Thinking it was just a corporate assignment, basically. Right. I was going to shoot some B-roll that these guys were going to slap on the back of a CD because Napster and digital was just starting to nip at the heels of mm-hmm. the record industry. And um, the idea of the B-roll was that you know the record business, which was about to change drastically two years or three years later, uh, they were still trying to sell physical CDs mm-hmm. and the idea of some bonus 20 minutes of Metallica bonus footage was really all I was going out to do. And um, I get to San Francisco, I call Lars, hey, I'm here. And he's, oh man, I wish I, I forgot. Sorry, Jason Newstead just quit the band. We're falling apart and uh, I'm not sure we're going to even record a record. So I was there and we had drinks and I kind of hung out. And then that's when he tells me, yeah, and our. Our management companies hired the shrink, and I'm like, that's when the light. I'm like, oh, okay, can I can I shoot that? And he looked at me like I was crazy, and then kind of liked the idea. And honestly, Lars, you know, Lars is a guy. If he wasn't a you know a rock and roll star, he would be a film producer. He he loves film uh-huh. and really has some smart things about film to say. So he was also a driving force behind the Metallica film because he. You know, he liked this idea. So somehow I found myself pushing my way into the Ritz-Carlton suite that, uh-huh. they were, <laughs> that they were having their first therapy session. And it was really just me. It's so interesting. And I'm sitting there holding this camera filming, the, um, you know, these two icons of male testosterone yeah. <laughs> sharing their feelings. And I'm thinking to myself. It was really something to see. And I'm thinking to myself, um, you know, I don't know what this is going to become and I don't know why the universe has placed me here. But this is re- – after what I've been through, this is really healthy for me, to, mm-hmm. you know, because, what you know, these guys were going through a creative and existential crisis yeah. just like I was. And I just – again, I didn't think, oh, my God, I'm going to spend the next three or four years and make this epic rock and roll documentary. I just was grateful to be in the room to witness what was going on because it was helping me. In fact, it caused me to reflect upon my breakup with Bruce and how I mishandled it. Right. And so I called Bruce up and I said, man, you got to get out here. We're going to make this film together. You know, I'm sorry for what I did in the past and let's let's make this film together. 
again, neither one of us imagining it would be the journey that it became. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we even use the therapy sessions, um, you know, to help ourselves. Like yeah. we go back to the hotel room ourselves and kind of the conversation that we were filming triggered us to have our own little mini therapy sessions oh, and, great. and try to repair our relationship and figure out, you know, what, you know, where it went off the rails. And so, you know, we were lucky enough to continue working together for yeah. a little bit after that. Um, I forgot the point I'm trying to make, but, um, <laughs> Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast. How rude Tanneritos as a nostalgic voice from your past. I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You asked why I didn't go back to scripted movies. First of all, it was a horrifying experience to, you know, like on on all of my docs, I'm the, you know, whether they're with Bruce and then it's a we or whether the many films I've done on my own. In my documentary life, I am the author of the work. Mm-hmm. I, I, You know, for the most part, I get final cut. Of course, when you're dealing with networks, they give you suggestions or whatnot. Right. whatnot. But basically, <clears throat> I'm a final cut director in non- nonfiction. And having had my movie that I thought was great and everyone left the set thinking, man, we we really did something special and unique, having Blair Witch 2 be put in the meat grinder by a, by a bunch of committee idiot studio executives. Right. Not Look, there's a lot of great studio executives. I'm not castigating studio executives in general, but the people running Artisan 
all they cared about was the IPO of right. the company that, you know, this was also the IPO craze. Yeah, yeah. And so they were trying to take artists in public and they just saw dollar signs and they did not care about the craft of the movie at all. And they were looking for the biggest bang possible and they, it was a complete misfire thanks to their, the a committee of people meddling in my film. And that scared the shit out of me. It was yeah. – you know, so I, it, it made me retreat from features for a really long time because if you can be the author of your own work in nonfiction or, Absolutely. Be, or be subjected mm -hmm. to a bunch of idiots telling you how to make a film in the scripted realm, I decided I'd rather stick with documentary. And I'm glad because the Metallica film was one of the greatest experiences right. I've ever had in my life. It came at exactly the right time. You know, the subsequent two Paradise Lost movies, mm -hmm. you know, saw the release of the West Memphis Three, which getting people out of prison who are – wrongfully convicted the that no greater accolade you know than that mm -hmm. um in terms of feeling like what you're doing has value um the wadi bulger film was great I, I, uh, thank you um so i've i've greatly enjoyed my nonfiction life but you know about 5 years ago i started you know looking at the scripted market again and have been attached to a couple of different projects mm -hmm. that you know, it's not easy getting an in indie movie off the ground. I mean, I've been attached to a couple of things that have fallen apart, but it's only fairly recently that I started looking into doing a scripted mm -hmm. movie again, and uh, this came along at exactly the right time. And yeah, I thought. I mean, it was a great movie. I was really impressed with uh, Zac Efron. Just um, man, he was great. great. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't know a ton about him in his earlier career. I. Uh, saw him in the film Neighbors, though, and thought, man, he's actually really funny. Yeah. And then he continues to sort of impress me with how good he is at different things. Yeah, you know. Um, Despite it, being just so perfect and handsome. Yeah. It's no, like I'm kind of angry at him. No, no, you can't be <laughs> angry he's, at him. He's talented, guy. too. I mean, you know, one reason you can't be angry at Zach, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, um, is it's really hard to be him. I mean, I, you know. Like, oh, I'm sure. Like at Sundance, we were on uh, – uh, you know, the little press tour at Sundance. And he literally can't walk on the street yeah. without being mobbed. And that sounds, maybe it sounds that, that sounds fun, but no, it, it really isn't. <laughs> I mean, this guy literally can't go in public yeah. without a thousand screaming women of a certain age, like just needing a piece of him. Yep. And again, that sounds like some great fantasy for, for people, but it, it, it isn't, yeah. you know, and I think that's, it's hard to be Zach. Um, and he just seemingly wants to do good work at this point. It's true. And that's, you know, that's the reason I, I mean, how he came to be, how this whole movie came to be is actually pretty interesting because, um, you know, I was not, as you know, I did Conversations with the Killer, mm -hmm. which is the doc series for Netflix, which is about Bundy. Right. And that was already ongoing when I was having lunch with my agent in California, just telling him how cool this, so it's, it's like April of 2017, and I was already doing the doc and in April 2017, I was having lunch with my agent at CAA, which is Creative Artist Agency, one of the talent agencies. Mm -hmm. And CAA represents me. And I was t explaining how fascinating the Bundy Doc series is because it was based on these audio tapes of his right. final interviews on death row. And um, utterly chilling and fascinating. And I, I, I was just going on about how cool I think – the show is going to be and disturbing in all the right ways and like a good lesson for the, the new generation to not, you know, just assume somebody is good because they look and act a certain way. Right. And that's when my agent said, oh, you should read the script called Extremely Wicked. 
extremely wicked, um, shockingly evil and vile. Right. This script uh, was is on or was on what's called the Hollywood Blacklist. Oh, was it one of those? Yeah. So okay. the Hollywood Blacklist, for people who don't know, is a list of scripts that executives and producers in Hollywood really like. Wish that somebody would make, but nobody's figured out how to get the funding or or what yeah. the proper. It's all the best stuff in Hollywood, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's the stuff that people that hasn't been greenlit, but people say, "Hey, you know, if if somebody could figure out how to uh-huh. do that script, it might be good." So he said, "You should read the script because you're so immersed in Bundy." And so I read the script, was totally captivated by its unique point of view, i.e., telling the story from the perspective of his longtime girlfriend. Who, All right. So that was always a part of it. That was a, a big question for me. It was a part of it, but I, in ways that I can tell you in a minute, I, I changed it a little bit. Um, but basically, um, I, uh, you know, I, I read the script. I said I loved it and got on the phone with the producer. And again, I've been attached to a couple of things in the last couple of years that take forever to get off the ground. Yeah. Like it takes months to attach talent. It takes years to find money. I mean, there's a couple of movies that I'm attached to that started three years ago, and we still don't have mm-hmm. you know the full financing yet. So these things take a while, particularly a Hollywood blacklisted script. But in April, I read the script. A couple of weeks later, I got on the phone with a producer named Michael Costigan who controlled the rights to the script, mm-hmm. and I gave him my take. You know, when you want a job as a director of a feature film, you have to give your take, right. which means how do you, how are you going to do the movie? And so my my analysis of why the script wasn't working or wasn't getting made is that the script the original script even though the bones of it are very similar to what the final movie is I I made a few very important I think changes that got people excited one is the original script relied upon the audience not knowing it's Ted Bundy the serial killer literally until the final scene of the film. No, interesting. And which makes for a great read. You know, this guy right. named Ted, this woman named Liz. In fact, they're unnamed in the movie. Uh-huh. You know? So Ted and Liz are having this, um, uh, you know, great relationship. And then all of a sudden these legal predicaments start mounting. And so this guy who is so believable and charismatic is falling into this Kafka-esque you know, series of legal entanglements and that he's a wrongfully accused guy. Right. Which is part of the bones of the script, obviously. Uh-huh. But, but wh- you know, what reads well that you don't know it's Bundy until the very end, I think was impractical in yeah. reality because there's no way a movie like this can get made, especially in this day and age of instantaneous information. Where yeah. You wouldn't know it's the Ted Bundy movie, whether it's Zach or somebody right. else who signed up, it would be an announcement. And, and then would, it feels a bit like a stunt. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I felt that that reads great. But let's lean into the fact that it's Bundy. Let's lean even harder into this POV that, you know, that here's a guy who seduced the American media, seduced the judicial system and seduced, you know, his live-in girlfriend into thinking that he's a good guy. Yeah. And so I leaned into that a little heavier because the film relies upon or the original script relied upon not knowing it's Ted until mm-hmm. the very end. It allowed that script to have a much lighter tone. And there is a light tone to the first half of my film. But, yeah. it, but it gets dark actually pretty quickly and takes a descent into real darkness towards the end. That was, you know, that was my mm-hmm. push. Like the film needs to be grounded in 
we need to do away with this kind of catch me if you can tone of the mm-hmm. original script right. and take it to a darker place and infuse it with a level of reality and embrace the Bundy story points. Yeah. Which included adding things like archival footage, right. you know, which wasn't part of the original script. So that was my pitch. And again, I think this is baby step number 14 mm-hmm. in a multi-year process and maybe five years from now I'd be shooting the movie. But so I, so I gave – so I read the script in April. By the end of April, the um, the producer and I are like you know on the same page about what my take is. So we decide to you know go out with it. But it just so happened that um, at the weekly meeting that agents at agencies have, mm-hmm. at my agency, it was CAA, my agent mentioned that Joe was taking me, was taking a run at this script, you know, Extremely Wicked, which all the agents know as a beloved script, a beloved unproducible script. Right. And Zach Efron's agent also, Zach is at CAA. Mm-hmm. So Zach Efron's agent was at this meeting and said, oh, well, maybe Zach should take a read because he's looking to do something different. Yeah. And so I was asked, do you want Zach to read the script, which is a bigger question than it might at first appear. Uh-huh. <laughs> because when you ask an actor at his level to read the script, it's called a reading offer. Mm-hmm. And it means if he takes the time to read the script and says, yes, you're obligated to hire him. So it's not like a casual, hey, do you want right. to read the script? It's like, <laughs> do you want to hire this guy if he says yes? Yeah. So I had to think for a second. In fact, I was on a I was at the gate at JFK about to fly to South Africa and the doors were closing and I'm reading this email. Does Zach – do you want Zach to read the script? So I could have waited 36 hours until I got to my hotel yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, delayed and thought about it on the flight. But, you know, it just felt like, oh, that's cool. And I said yes uh, almost immediately because I felt – first of all, this is a movie that was going to be made for Peanuts. Right. You know, the budget was not big and so for Zach to want to take – and for his agent to be suggesting mm-hmm. that this guy take a 99% pay cut, which right. is basically what he did compared to like Baywatch, um, that says to me he's really committed. Mm-hmm. And secondly, if he was willing to pay uh, play with his teen heartthrob image, yeah. then that's a level of commitment. And for me as a documentarian, actually playing with that – because for a certain demographic of women, he was – Exactly like Bundy had this. Right. He has this spell over people, and if he was willing to poke a hole in that, that gives me like a piece of reality mm-hmm. that I can bring into the movie. And as a documentarian, that's something that I, you know I felt like gives me some reality to work with. Um, and so he said yes. Oh, sorry. So I, I land in South Africa, and actually I'm going to Namibia. So that's why I say it's a 36 hour journey. I finally get hotel Wi Fi. I look at my phone, and uh, it's it's an email from my agent saying, "Hey, Zach read the script already and loves it." Which like, whoa, that was quick. Because sometimes you give scripts to actors and they take months mm-hmm. to read. Sure. So. We get on the phone. We have a great conversation. We have a couple of conversations and we decide to like let's go for it. Mm-hmm. And literally uh, the week later, uh, the producer says, let's take it to Cannes. And I'm thinking, this is happening too quickly. This is like bizarre. Right. You know, Cannes is not just a film festival but it's a place where movie deals get done. Where, right. Where you sell movies that are yet to be made. Um, and literally – from the day I read the script in early April to May 11th when the movie was greenlit as a movie was about six weeks. Mm-hmm. 
six weeks before I hadn't even n- heard of a script called Extremely Wicked. That's crazy. So it's insane how yeah, quickly yeah. that – but now I'm st- I'm stuck, quote, unquote, with the problem of I'm in the middle of my documentary and I'm supposed to do a feature at the same time. So uh-huh. it made me a little nervous, but luckily <laughs> – excuse me. Uh, once I uh, approached uh, Lily Collins to be um, Liz, and she was my first choice, she said a yes immediately too. But she had an availability issue, and Zach had an availability issue, so the movie got pushed to January. So it allowed of this of twenty eighteen. So it allowed me to finish uh, the more or less get the documentary rough cut, mm-hmm. and then my team could take over in New York. And then I went off to shoot the movie. And the fact that the two got made at the same time and released at the same time because January 24th – it's all coincidental. Right. Uh, You know, January 24th is the 30th anniversary of the execution of Bundy. So that's when Netflix decided to release Conversations with a Killer. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first day of Sundance as well. And So my movie, Extremely Wicked, premiered two days later at Sundance after Conversations with a Killer had just been released. And Netflix wasn't part of the picture for the movie. Um, In fact, you know, initial conversations with Netflix was that they weren't interested in it. This is prior to Conversations with a Killer. Mm -hmm. But Conversations with a Killer – did so well immediately that during Sundance, there was all this buzz about the doc and people were loving the movie and we were getting offers for traditional theatrical distribution. But I started talking with Netflix saying, look, you know, the two films together on your service to a global audience would be a great thing. And they agreed. And and so we ended up uh, selling the movie to Netflix at Sundance, but that wasn't part of the original plan. All right. Well, I wish we had another hour or two. I know. And, uh, and we can't talk about documentary or films that you had wanted to talk oh, about. Oh, that's OK. You know what? This is great. I mean, I rarely get to pick the brain of a uh, documentarian of your stature. So this has been wonderful. Oh, cool. Appreciate um, it. Maybe we can do a part two sometime in awesome. uh, New York or something. That'd be awesome. And thanks for coming in, hey, man. Hey, thanks for having me. This yeah. was fun. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Very much an honor to sit down um, with Joe and and pick his brain. Uh, I wish we had more time. I'm going to try and do a follow-up in New York City because I had about a gazillion questions about documentaries and the approach and his thoughts on the medium and the form uh, that we couldn't get to because we only had about an hour. Um, But very insightful guy, um, very talented. I hope you have – if you you haven't followed his career – Watch Brothers Keeper. Watch uh, the Paradise Lost films. The Metallica documentary is great. Go check out Iconoclast. Um, all of those are really, really great films. And he's got um, many, many more in the documentary film world. But uh, definitely check out Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile on Netflix. Drops two weeks today on May 3rd. Excellent film. Uh, getting to see Zach Efron stretches, acting chops and directions that I didn't even know he could go. He was great. So I enjoyed the film, and I hope you do too. And uh, big thanks to Joe for coming in here and making some time for me. So uh, that's it, everyone, for this week. Um, until next time, make a documentary. Or maybe I've said that before. So if you did that, make another one. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell 
from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.